True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to TGC True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano, and on today's episode, we're going to look at the Snowtown Murders, a.k.a. the Bodies and Barrels Murders. When I first saw the name of the town, I kept calling it Snowden, because I'm from Montreal, and there's a, a community there called Snowden, and there's a metro stop called Snowden. So it took me a long time, and I was like, Sn- I kept calling it Snowden when I was doing all the research, and then it's, I was like, oh wait, it's Snowtown. And then I was like, wait a minute, why is there a place called Snowtown in Australia? Does it snow there? Um, so I was curious, and I googled it. So in 1878, South Australian Governor William Gervois named the town after either Thomas Snow, who was at the time Gervois' aide-de-camp, or Sebastian Snow, who was the governor's private secretary. So both of these guys, they were cousins, basically, and they were high up in the military ranks. Or it was named after Jon Snow from Game of Thrones. So one of those three, we're not actually sure. But it is important to note that the murders didn't actually happen in Snowtown proper. Well, one of them did. But the others did not. It was just a remote place where they were storing the bodies away from authorities. Australia, in general, is just one of those places on my bucket list, honestly. It, it, it feels like everybody that says that they go to Australia comes back and says, I want to live there. They just want to move there. So I just want a little bit of that Aussie magic. I want to go to Oz. I want to do the Gold Coast. I want to do I want to do like the Barrier Reef and stuff like that before it disappears. Like actually, I would love to go scuba diving on the Barrier Reef, the Great Barrier Reef. But you know what? I tried it once uh, in Puerto Vallarta. So gay. And I'm a competitive swimmer. Like my background is competitive swimming. And so the water for me is like a second home. I just, and growing up, I wanted to become a dolphin or a merman because, you know, as one does wish to become those things, merman, mermen are very sexy anyway. But, um, yeah, I always wanted to like live in the ocean and be a merman and stuff. So I thought (laughs) scuba diving, that's going to be so easy. And then I put on all the equipment and then I went under and I actually had a panic attack. Because I felt claustrophobic. I don't know if you had that experience. If you've been scuba diving before. Even if you love marine life. Even if you're an amazing swimmer. It doesn't matter. Those things do not preclude you from being a not good scuba diver. I'm I'm serious. If you are claustrophobic, you're going to feel it. It's... They put they put on the mask and then you have to the problem is you have to breathe through your mouth. And I don't like that. I'm not a mouth breather. I'm a nose breather. So it's very unnatural for me to be breathing through my mouth anyway. And then you submerge me underwater. And my only option at that point is to breathe through my mouth if I want to live. So now you're, you're, you're basically slowly lowering yourself, you know, underwater. And once you're submerged... There's this panic that happens where you're like, it's now or never. Like, And there's somebody on top of you who's coming next. So you're part of this chain also. So you feel very forced to continue. And I just had this terrible, panicky, 
like I can't breathe. And, and then, of course, my mask was fogging up. It was horrible. And I thought that I was going to take to scuba diving like a duck to water. And it was the opposite. I was floundering. After a couple of tries, I finally got it. But I don't know. I wasn't that big a fan. I think that they have scuba diving equipment where you can breathe through your nose. I'm pretty sure that exists. Somebody let me know if that exists. I think it does. And if it does, that's going to be my option. Because breathing through my nose is so much more natural. And I feel like if I had that as an option, or also those full masks where it just covers your whole face and you're just like breathing as you would normally, that would totally... Anyway, wow, sidebar. No, uh, sidetrack. No, I would love to see the Great Barrier Reef and go to Brisbane and the Gold Coast and Sydney and Melbourne, um, Brisbane, Brisbane. Oh my God, I'm probably like butchering these names because I know that, you know, people that actually live there say them differently. Melbourne, Melbourne. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I was researching the Snowtown murders and Snowtown is in, is in South Australia, which is near Adelaide. And I was like, I didn't even know where Adelaide was. Um, and I kind of think of myself as a geography nerd. Like I love looking at maps, which is probably tied into my love for travel as well. But yeah, I love looking at maps. I love knowing where the countries are. I'm such a nerd. I like knowing the shape of the country and, you know, what ocean it butts up against and what are the surrounding countries. I like populate, like, what's the population of that country? What a nerd. And, and how is that useful information? I wish I, like, what career is that? You know, what do you do? Oh, I know the populations of countries. Okay, but how do you apply that in, you know, in real life? Like, why? That's your interest? I don't, you know, what makes you happy? Oh, knowing the ethnic diversity of an, a region. Oh, okay. Actually, I'm making fun, but probably there's tons of jobs that require this kinds of information. I wonder, huh? I'm going back to school now, everyone. Um, anyway, it's near Adelaide in South Australia. And I don't know, it was very interesting to find out where that was. And that's why I like to do my murder maps which I put on uh, my Facebook page, A True Gay Crime, just to give an idea of where in the fucking world we're talking about. Because a lot of these smaller towns, you know, it's nice to give a point of reference so you know, oh, okay, it's close to there in that region of the world. Got it, got it. Okay, so then you can put yourself in that place when you're hearing the story. Ooh, ooh, I just finished, and I wanted to uh, finish this little part up by saying I finished a show that thank you to my favorite murder the podcast with uh, georgia and um, karen and karen had suggested that you know one of her favorite shows whatever that she had seen on netflix was uh, afterlife with uh, ricky gervais and i was like okay first of all i like karen second of all i like ricky gervais um what's the third of all no that was it so i thought okay i'm gonna watch this show and at first I thought, it took me a second to get into it because th the thing that Ricky does with his shows is so um, different than what you see on American TV, right? He's so dark. I mean, he really, like, I'm a dark person and I've got a dark sense of humor and he just goes there. Like, they put it, this, I recommend it. If you haven't seen Afterlife, watch it and don't give up on it right away just give it give it a chance give it a second if if you need to do that you know to get into the rhythm of 
of how the show is, but it is so dark, but not for dark's sake. It's it's almost like, and this is so Ricky too, like oh, like we're friends now. That's so Ricky. Um, it's so Mr. Gervais, Gervais, um, because he uses the darkness to highlight the light, you know, which is really brilliant and the polar opposite of what American TV, American TV is all about. Hey, look at this smiles and success and everything is happy. And that means, you know, good things and whatever, but he's the opposite. He's like, no, life is shit and death is here and and everything is just so dark and drugs and well you'll see when you watch it but but it's used to highlight that you know what actually things are okay and things are, and this and that and it highlights all the positive and optimistic things so it's very beautifully done and the cast of characters and i didn't realize sorry i thought i finished it there's a season 2 and usually like i hate that like if i really like something and then season two gets worse and season three is just a nightmare and they bring on all these like celebrities and th- and it just totally loses its steam. But season two, and I just started it, but so far it's just as good or better than season one. So anyway, check out Afterlife. Let me know what you think of it because for me, this is totally my type of show. Like, like there's a prostitute, there's a drug addict. You know, he lives at some, um, he lives, he works, actually his house is really nice, but he works at this newspaper that's just like a local paper where they cover just shit stories. Like everything is just so kind of sad. It, the setup is just so sad, but then it highlights how wonderful life can be. Ooh, ooh. And the best thing is the relationship that he has um, with a woman in, this, uh, in the cemetery. Okay, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, spoiling, I'm spoiling too much. I'm not going to talk anymore about it. Just go watch it. Okay, so my sources for this story were as follows. I used Wikipedia. I used Murderpedia. I found a good article on peoplepill.com, uh, thecriminalcode.com, and abc.net.au. There's an article by Andrew Mc... Oh, God. McGarry. That's it. Sorry, Andrew. Without further ado, here are the Snowtown Murders. The story of the Snowtown Murders begins with John Justin Bunting. He was born September 4th, 1966 in Inala, Queensland, which is just outside Brisbane on the western coast of Australia. He is the only child to Tom and Jan Bunting. In 1974, it starts off bad for this guy. He's eight years old, and he's brutally beaten and raped by the older brother of a friend. So this is a trauma that is going to scar this guy for the rest of his entire life, as it would. But more than scar him, it sparks a deep and lasting hatred for the people, the types of people that he blamed for this, these kinds of crimes, namely pedophiles and homosexuals. These Two groups of people would become the primary reason for his murders, his raison d'être. During this time, he started experimenting torturing ants with acid. Now, we all know that once they start torturing animals, it's a slippery slope. In 1981, when he was 15, he had his first sexual experience with a girl, and he gets her pregnant. Like, this guy is just batting zero at this point. He drops out of high school in grade 11 bad choice. In 1986, at the age of 20, he works at a crematorium. 
of course he does, where he spent each shift working with human cadavers, and so begins his desensitization and dehumanization of human bodies. Two years later, at the age of 22, he worked at an SA Meat Corporation, which is basically a slaughterhouse for animals, and reportedly bragged about slaughtering the animals, saying that that's what he enjoyed the most. So this is heading to a dark, dark place. He has also been described as a skilled manipulator of people. During this time, he shared a house with a man named Kevin Reed and Kevin's girlfriend in North Adelaide, South Australia. So he's gone from Brisbane. Now he's in near in the outskirts of um, Adelaide and South Australia. One day, Bunting had the thought to kill his housemate's bull terrier. So he did. So he did. He killed the dog. The weirder part is they remain housemates. Like, I don't understand. If you're Kevin and you come home and your dog is dead and you know your roommate did it, how do you remain housemates after that? I mean, did he make up an excuse? He was probably just like, well, I felt like killing something, so I killed your dog. What? At 23 years old, in January 1989, Bunting took up a metalworking class. Also in that class was Veronica Tripp, who he married in September of the same year. She had a teenage son already named James from a previous relationship. She moves into the home with Bunting, who still shared this place with Kevin Reed and his dead dog. I don't get it. Uh, And other arrangements were made for James at the time. But finally, in December 1991, the happy couple found their own home in Salisbury North, a low-rent suburb of Adelaide. Then from there, Bunting moves to Waterloo Corner Road in South Australia in the beginning of November 1991. And it's at this new address that Bunting befriends his neighbors, Mark Hayden and Robert Wagner. These are two names you're going to hear a lot more about in this story. And these are the relationships which would form the base of the terrifying group that would execute people around them. Let's look at them individually. We've got Robert Joe Wagner. He was born November 28, 1971 in Parramatta in New South Wales, which is basically a suburb of Sydney. Wagner started out as a neighbor, but then became the best friend of Bunting. But get this. Wagner, who went by the nickname Papa Smurf, was gay. What? So Bunting, who grows up with this hatred, he's sexually abused and then grows up with a hatred for homosexuals. Like he is just there. They need to be wiped off the face of the earth. And then he befriends his neighbor. They become buddies. His neighbor is gay. But not just gay, like Wagner's romantic partner at the time, Barry Lane, went by also a.k.a. Vanessa Lane. He was a male crossdresser with a history of pedophilia and of associating with pedophiles. What? So like Bunting just, in his mind, he must have thought, oh my god, I hit the jackpot. Like this is exactly my target. These are the people that I want dead and I've just moved basically next door to them. My only thinking is, at this point, he must have been thinking, hey, these people are disgusting. I want to wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm going to get close to them and find out more information before I wipe them out. So I I feel like that's what was happening in his mind at this point. But we'll see that change a little bit later on. So we'll get to that. But uh, oddly, though, these men... Uh, do become friends with Bunting, and they assist him in disposing of the body of his first victim, Clinton Trezise. What? So, Wagner, 
who is the gay neighbor, later assisted Bunting in the remaining 10 murders and even, spoiler alert, cannibalized his final victim. We're going to get to all that later. But Wagner has been described as being amongst Australia's worst serial killers ever. Okay, so that's on one side with the neighbors. On the other side, neighbors, we've got Mark Ray Hayden. He was born December 4th, 1958. Mark Hayden and John Bunting met in a welding uh, course and became good friends. Bunting is very incestuous. This entire story is a web of relationships, of people connected through marriage, through lust, through stepbrothers and stepsisters and killings. And so I'm going to try to keep this as clear as possible. But Bunting ended up dating Hayden's sister. So Hayden's his new neighbor. He ends up dating his sister for a while and later on Hayden's wife's sister. So extremely incestuous, but let's just keep going here. The murder spree began in August 1992 when Bunting invited Clinton Tresize, a 22-year-old he felt was unsafe to be around children and accused him of being a threat to them. So Bunting, what, did, what does he do? He invites Tresize over to his place under the guise of just like a social visit. Hey, come hang out. Let's have a drink. And then while he's there, he quickly takes the opportunity to constrain him, and then he beats his head with a shovel and a hammer. And then Bunting buries the body in a shallow grave with the help of Wagner and Lane. Wagner's the gay neighbor. Lane is a.k.a. Vanessa Lane. Right? And, P.S., Lane also dated Tresize for a while before this. So what happened was Bunting got to know Wagner and Lane next door, the gays, and then Lane snitched on his ex, Tresize, for, or he spread, whether it's rumors or whatnot, he said that basically he's a pedophile which is what Bunting loathes the most on the face of the earth. So Bunting attacks Tresize in his home and kills him and then is assisted by Wagner in Lane in disposing of the body. Like already, this is, this is, and this is the beginning. Okay. Whenever Bunting referred to Tresize after the murder, he'd call him Happy Pants. Tresize was found on October 16th, 94 at Lower Light, South Australia, but there were no suspects when they found the body, and it would be another three years before Bunting murdered again. So he got it a little out of his system and then took a break because, well, took a break from killing people, but listen to this. For most of 94, Bunting took up a hobby. Do you want any guesses to what that hobby could be? Oh, he started killing and skinning cats and dogs, and not just some, like a lot of them. And it didn't matter. They weren't just strays. They were people's cats and dogs. He would go into yards and just take your dog and skin it. He didn't hide this behavior. And he even encouraged his stepson, uh, James Tripp, to watch. Also in 1994, while he's married to Veronica Tripp, Bunting begins a sexual affair with Elizabeth Harvey. Now, Elizabeth already has four kids from her previous relationship. She's got Troy Ude. And then she's got three boys with the last name Velasakis, James, Adrian, and Christopher. The one you're going to hear a lot about is James. So Elizabeth finds out that the murders of Tresize, she finds out about the murders of Tresize, and with Bunting's encouragement, she's even assisted 
in the next murder. She stabs the poor leg of Ray Davies. All right, so we're on to murder number two here. Ray Davies was a neighbor. Of course, they're all neighbors. They all know each other. Okay, this is so like weird. It's such a small place. They all know each other. Ray Davies was a neighbor and was intellectually disabled and lived in a caravan behind the house of Suzanne Allen in Salisbury North. Davies, who used to date Suzanne Allen, became a target for murder after Suzanne accused him of making sexual advances to her grandsons. I don't know if there was an outbreak of pedophilia or if people were so paranoid and full of hate and fear and needed to point fingers and blame like the Salem witch trials or something. But here is a woman who dated this man. They're not dating anymore. He's moved into basically her backyard. And then she tells Bunting and the rest of the murdering crew that the guy she used to date who's living in her backyard made advances to her grandsons. So what do you think happens? Well, Davies was murdered by Bunting and Wagner. By this point, Bunting and Wagner, Bunting being the ringleader and Wagner, his gay sidekick, are thickest thieves by this point, and they murder Davies in 1995. Davies was strangled with a piece of rope and a tire lever after being placed in a bath, attacked with clubs, repeatedly beaten about his genitals, and having a toe crushed with a pair of pliers. They cleaned up his caravan, they move it to a house, they paint it, and they sell it two months later. And Bunting continued to claim Davies' welfare payments. So this becomes his modus operandi this sort of torturing confessing forcing them to confess things that either they did or didn't do it didn't matter you're gonna you're gonna admit to anything under torture and then eventually killing them and then reaping the rewards of either their welfare checks or their pensions davy's body was eventually recovered by police buried in bunting's backyard at the waterloo corner address so, let's talk about Suzanne Allen. She's the one that accused Davies of being a pedophile. So, she was a friend of Bunting's. So, obviously, she went to Bunting to accuse her ex of being a pedophile. Um, and also, guess what? She gets murdered, too. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like nobody's safe. You think you're safe because you accuse somebody else of doing something. But make sure you lock your doors, because with Bunting on the loose, you could be next. And she is murdered sometime after Davies. The weird thing about her is that her remains were found buried above Davies's in the same uh, little plot in the garden and the house at Salisbury North. Her remains were wrapped in 11 different plastic bags, and her death was concealed, and they continued to collect her pension, of course, but they later claimed she actually died of a heart attack. Obviously, this is before we found the dismembered body. Based on the evidence presented at the trial, the jury was unable to decide without doubt that she had been murdered, so it was not an official victim of the Snowtown murders. I mean, clearly she was murdered, but they couldn't pin it on Bunting. But she's in the same grave as another victim that you have pinned on bunting so why wouldn't somebody else that's in the same grave be part of the same fate at this point bunting is still with elizabeth harvey uh and in 1995 her son the young james valasakis moved into bunting's home 
And this begins his involvement in the murders. So there was basically four main people that were doing the murdering and covering up and moving bodies and things. Uh, James Velasakis being the fourth and youngest one. He was born on December 24th, 1979. Velasakis looked up to Bunting as a father figure. He and his mother and half-brother lived with Bunting, and he was gradually drawn into helping with the murders. Bunting regularly communicated to Valasakis his hatred for pedophiles and homosexuals. Vlasakis, God, that name is hard to say, motherfucker. Vlasakis confided in Bunting that his stepbrother, Troy, had molested him at the age of 13. Bunting said that Troy should be bashed. So there's a lot of finger pointing and um, accusing people of things. Uh, And in this case, we don't know if it's true. Maybe he just didn't even like his stepbrother um, because James Vlasakis, you know, has a screw loose, obviously, as does Bunting. That's why they got along so well. As does Wagner. That's why they got along so well. Oh, wait, as does Hayden. That's why they got along so well. Okay. Bunting and Vlasakis hit it off immediately. Okay, we know that. Vandalizing homes of suspected quote-unquote dirties. There was a room in Bunting's home, and on the entire wall, he had his rock spider wall, he called it, which was a complex yarn web of sticky note names and photographs of people who he thought to be gay. And the term rock spider in Australian prison slang uh, means pedophile along with the plural dirties. So just imagine the wall, you know, when you watch those cop shows and they have like the photographs and then they have like string, like attaching like this name to this name. And he had that on his wall, but these are basically people he suspected of being pedophiles and well, basically his next target, right? So at some point in 1995, Bunting confided in young Valasakis that he had killed a man named Ray Davies that we covered before. Not only that, he told the boy that his mom, Elizabeth Harvey, had stabbed Davies in the leg. Both true things. Just before Wagner strangled the man to unconsciousness with jumper cables. So now, Vlasakis knows who Bunting is. And now he's really being groomed. Bunting's first murder of Trisize remained unsolved. And in 1997, he was the the subject of two episodes of the Australian television show, Australia's Most Wanted. And guess what? Bunting, sitting on the couch in the living room, was watching that episode with young Vlasakis and his mother. And Bunting boasted to them, that's my handiwork. And again revealed to Vlasakis that he had murdered Trisize and that he disposed of Trisize's body in lower light with Wagner and Lane's assistance. So now, young James Vlasakis is in deep. He is involved, and not only that, he knows his mother is involved, and he knows that his neighbors, Wagner and Lane, also assisted in covering up the murder. The next murder was of Barry Lane, a.k.a. Vanessa Lane. Lane, as we already know, was an open homosexual and cross-dresser who had previously been in a relationship with, with Wagner from 1985 until 1996. So Wagner and Lane dated for over 11 years. But the weird part about this, and which kind of lends itself to the credence that perhaps Lane liked them too young, is that Lane's relationship with Wagner began when Wagner was only 13 years old. So that's super creepy. 
Um, the pair shared a house in Bingham Road, Salisbury North, near the home of Bunting, which we know because they're all friends and they've already covered up a murder by now. Bunting often referred to Lane as being dirty and as a pedophile. On the day of his murder, Lane was forced by Bunting to call his mother and he was told to tell his mother that he was moving to Queensland and he wanted nothing more to do with her ever again. This became another thing that Bunting did with his... I was going to call them guests. Wow. Uh, Another thing that he did with his victims was that he forced them to call their family members or communicate somehow with their family members that they were moving and they didn't want anything to do with their family ever again. That way, when the families didn't hear from the victims, it wouldn't be as suspicious. Make sense? So Bunting learned that Lane told others about the murder of Tree Size. Okay. This is another thing that a lot of them, they all have big fucking mouths, like close, shut your face. Bunting learns that Lane was going around telling people that he helped in covering up the murder of Trisize. So that was another reason. It's not bad enough you're a pedophile for Bunting, but also you're out there basically bragging about the murders. So Bunting's like, fuck this, you're, you have to die. So after Lane's murder, Bunting stole Lane's vehicle and claimed his welfare payments, as he does. Thomas Trivulan was also involved in the murder. So I'm going to cover him next. He doesn't last long, but you'll understand where Thomas comes into this next. Um, It was alleged that Bunting only associated with Lane to gain further information about pedophiles in the area, which does make sense to me. But it's still very calculated. If you have such a hatred for the... this man to befriend him and pretend to be nice to him just to get information about more. I mean, there's, there's just a duplicity there that is just, I wouldn't be able to mask my, my, my dislike for you to that degree. Uh, Lane was last seen alive in October, 1997. Lane's dismembered body was found by police strangled to death, rolled up in a rug and deposited into a barrel drum in the bank vault in Snowtown. So, um, Snowtown was quite a drive from where most of the murders happened. Very small, very small town. We're going to talk about Snowtown a little bit later and the bodies and how the bodies were brought there and stored there. But that's where Lane ended up. So let's talk about Thomas now. So Thomas used to date Lane, okay? He's also known to have suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. He was easily persuaded and was described as only wearing army-style clothes and would sometimes run outside of his house with a knife if he heard unfamiliar noises and was known to walk regularly extremely long distances. So he was a bit of a weirdo. He shared a house with Barry Lane for a period of five months from April to October 97. This is while they dated, but obviously before he helped in the murder of Lane. Bunting murdered uh, Thomas after finding out that he told others of his involvement in Lane's murder. So Thomas was basically murdered for the same reason that Lane was murdered. He couldn't keep his fucking mouth shut. Lane bragged about the murder, talked about it to other people. Then Thomas assists in disposing of Lane's body. And then Lane talks about it to other people. And now Lane, uh, Thomas, you're dead too. Problem was, Thomas also threatened Bunting's daughter with a knife. So, what do you think? I mean, you're not going to last long. 
Thomas had been considered a liability for some time, and Bunting told others that Thomas had started to fuck up and go mental, and that he would be a risk. Thomas was driven to Kersbrook in the Adelaide Hills by Bunting and Wagner. He was forced to stand on a box while a noose was fastened around his neck and the box kicked from out from under him. Thomas's body was found on November 5th, 1997, and police initially treated Thomas's death as a suicide, which it was meant to look like. Okay, so with Lane and Thomas out of the way, Bunting and Wagner, the dynamic duo, they had to look for a new target, and they found him in Michael Gardner. Now, Gardner was an openly gay man who was murdered by the two in August 1997. He was 19 years old. God, so young. And he shared a house with friends nearby. He was gay and a cross-dresser. I wonder, like, when I'm reading these articles, I'm wondering, they use the term cross-dresser, and I'm just like, do you mean drag queen? Do you mean, um, like, were they trans? Were, were they transitioning? Like, what do you mean cross-dresser? Did, like, I, I don't like using that term. This is the term. This is That's a copy-paste term from the interweb. Yeah. So it says cross-dresser. That could mean were they drag queens? You know, were they uh, transsexual women? Were they, like, what, what was the exact term? I feel like cross-dresser doesn't cover it properly, but... That's what it said. So anyway, um, Bunting and his gay sidekick Wagner tortured and strangled Gardner to death and placed his body in a barrel. Okay, after Gardner's murder, Bunting had an acquaintance call friends of Gardner pretending to be Gardner and demanding for his belongings back like his wallet and stuff, which I don't really understand. Why would his friends have his wallet? But, you know, at the end of every murder, Bunting is trying to cash out somehow. So he was trying that way. Gardner's body was found by police, stored in one of six drums in the bank vault in Snowtown. And the body of Barry Lane uh, was also located in the same barrel. One of Gardner's feet had been removed so the lid of the drum could be closed. Gruesome. Now, in 1998, 31-year-old Gavin Porter from Victoria, he was a friend of Valasakis. He moves into the house shared by Valasakis and Bunting. And Bunting uh, chose him as the next victim and referred to Porter, who was a heroin addict, as a waste who no longer deserved to live. So, after shooting up one day, Porter forgot a used syringe on the couch. Bunting got pricked by the syringe. He got really pissed, as you would. I'm just got, I just got pricked. I mean, I wouldn't kill somebody because of it, but I would be fucking pissed if I sat down on your used fucking syringe, poking the in the ass. Um, so on the night of his murder, Valasakis took Porter's two younger brothers to a drive-in movie. Porter was murdered by Bunting and Wagner, the dynamic duo, while sleeping in his car in the driveway of Bunting's house after working on the car. He was probably high. When the three returned from the movie, Bunting took Valasakis outside into the backyard shed where he had Porter's corpse. There was a rope pulled tightly around his neck. Next to Porter's corpse sat a barrel, inside of which were the bodies of Gardner and Lane. Bunting and Valasakis stuffed Porter's body into an empty barrel, which was filled with corrosive compounds, a type of acid actually, and Porter's body was stored in the barrel before being moved to Snowtown. So you can see they're starting to fill these barrels with bodies, and eventually they're going to move them to Snowtown. Now... 
Next victim. The young stepson, Velasakis, was in deep at this point and had a taste for blood. He basically chose the next victim when he confided in Bunting that Troy, his half-brother, had molested him when they were younger. And we covered that a little bit earlier when he was 13, right? So in August 1998, Bunting, Wagner, Valasakis, and Hayden... Now, Hayden's involvement is mostly... is not so much in the committing of the murders. He's more on the disposal side of things. Um, and he certainly was involved in this one, in the disposing. So Bunting, Wagner, and Valasakis dragged uh, poor Troy from his bed and they murdered him. Troy's body was dismembered and stored in a barrel and later moved to Snowtown. Okay. Now, enter two new characters into the plot. In July 1998, Frederick Brooks, age 17, and his mother, Jody Elliott, moves into the neighborhood. Now, of course, everyone is related somehow, so let me try to explain this. Jody Elliott is the sister of Elizabeth Hayden. Elizabeth Hayden, of course, is the wife of the gruesome, gruesome crew member Hayden, with the last name, right? Uh, Jody Elliott is a woman of below average intelligence who was crushing hard on Bunting and even had a relationship with him in 1998. Basically, if you want Bunting, you can ha- he's yours to have. Like, he just fucks anything. She even went so far, probably because of the low intelligence, and she's crushing on this guy who's super manipulative. She uh, impersonated the murdered neighbor, Suzanne Allen, and to collect her social security payments on Bunting's behalf. So he was just using her, basically. And despite Frederick Brooks... Now, remember, Frederick Brooks, Brooks is Jody Elliott's son. Despite Frederick Brooks being the son-in-law of the member of the crew being Mark Hayden's son-in-law, Bunting immediately disliked the teenager, labeling him a dirty because he was intellectually disabled. So if you're gay, if you're a pedophile, if you're disabled in any way, if you are quote-unquote weak, if you're different, you're a target. So he labels him dirty, and we all know what happens when Bunting calls you names you die. So in September of that year, Balasakis, Wagner, and Bunting tortured the young Brooks. This guy's 17, for Christ's sake. I mean, not that age has anything to do with it, but like he hasn't even lived his life. They torture him in a bathtub. He's handcuffed. He's thumbcuffed. They beat and torture him. They really do a number on this one. They force him to call them Master, God, and Lord Sir, They light cigarettes and then put them out in his ears and nostrils and left to burn. They light a sparkler and they shove it up his urethra. He's forced to speak into a recording device, including uh, his bank information, and, and he's forced to confess that he molested young girls, even though it's not true, or there's no proof of that. And a syringe was used to inject various substances into his testicles, and he was wired to a variac machine, sending electrical impulses through his body. So basically, you know, you see in the movies with the little, um, those little alligator clips, and then they clip it onto things. I think it's for cars, actually, right? And it's like an electric shock. So they, they put it on his testicles, they put it on the nipples, they put it on any sensitive part of the body, and then they would turn up the voltage. Bunting had attached the machine to his victim, explaining that it, what it was and how it worked, and he asked the terrified teenager to pick a number between 1 and 10 to signify the intensity of the pain. So at the first turn of the switch, uh, Bunting turns the machine up a few notches and for a few seconds, and Brooks in agony said it was a 10. 
Then Bunting switched the machine on again, and this time he left it on higher for longer, and Brooks's torture and this pain was obvious. And when the machine was turned off, Bunting asked him to give a number, and the young man said 100. Now, this is an eyewitness report from the court sessions from Balasakis, who was there during the torturing. Poor Frederick, his toes were then crushed by pliers, and finally a rag was stuffed into his mouth, and he was beaten until he died. His corpse was wrapped in plastic, then thrown into the trunk of a car, which was collected by Mark Hayden. See, Hayden is the one that, like, collects bodies and moves them around. The body was later located by police in the disused bank vault in Snowtown. Mark Hayden continued to access his son's, uh, his son-in-law's welfare payments. Can you believe? Like, these people, it's, it's his son-in-law. And he's the one that helped dispose of the body. And then, well, I guess collecting the welfare payments is, like, the least offensive thing he's doing at this point, right? His mother, Jody Elliott, reported her son as missing at first, but eventually ended up collecting the money on his behalf and rescinded her police report. Wow, mother of the year. Mother of the fucking year. Like, she knows what happened. He didn't just go missing. You know he was murdered. And then you're like, well, might as why would I give up the money? Might as well just keep taking that. So anyone considered weak or different was a target. And that's how the crew chose Gary O'Dwyer age 29, who was a mentally impaired man who had a pronounced limp and who lived alone. Now, his disabilities came from a car accident earlier in his life, and Bunting and Valasakis learned personal information about O'Dwyer, like whether he had any family and what his situation was, and Bunting was heard repeatedly calling O'Dwyer a fag. Of course, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Whether he was gay or not, it didn't matter to the crew, because in late October 1998, Valasakis convinced O'Dwyer, who was his next-door neighbor, to invite him, Bunting, and Wagner over for a drink. Ugh, that's a scary threesome. After drinks were had, without warning, Wagner grabbed and handcuffed O'Dwyer. He was dragged into the kitchen, where he was tortured extensively. Bunting would also go ahead and prepare a script for his victims to read into a recording device. He would force them to repeat words and phrases and sentences, and then he would later edit it into like a final statement to play on the phone for families and friends. And these messages were a combination of like false proof of life, and and in some cases it was just like a brutal rejection of loved ones to give the clear indication that, hey, I don't want any further contact with you, so don't try to get in touch with me, right? And the messages became known as the Voices from the Dead. After he made the recordings, he was murdered. O'Dwyer was seen by Bunting as an easy target, and he was murdered so Bunting could get O'Dwyer's welfare payments. After several days, his corpse was stuffed into a barrel. O'Dwyer's body was found by police in the bank vault in Snowtown. His body contained burn marks, which were inflicted by using the Variac machine to apply electric shocks. We probably passed this point a long time ago, but at this point... At this point in the story, these men are just on a killing rampage. So they ha- they started with a mission, right? Pedophiles and homosexuals, which just started to go into, oh, well, if you're disabled, oh, if you're weak, oh, if you're... So the scope of the people that they were killing was growing and growing. So if you were, you know, at by this point, if you were simply overweight then you're also a target. And that's how Bunting chose his next victim, the wife of one of the crew members, 
Elizabeth Hayden. Okay, so Elizabeth is their second to last murder and the only female that they were charged with. Because remember Suzanne Allen from 1995 who was found in the same grave as Davies? I mean, obviously they killed her too. But the only one that they, the only female that they murdered that they were charged with was Elizabeth. So Wagner considered Mark Hayden's wife Elizabeth to be a whore and a lowlife. And Bunting detested the woman as well. And we know that's all it takes now. So Elizabeth Hayden, age 37, found herself alone at home on November 21st, 1998, when Bunting and Wagner paid her a visit. Her husband and children had gone out, and later Bunting would say that she was behaving brazenly towards them. Yeah, right, as if. You guys are gross. So she needed to be killed. She was dragged to her bathroom, tortured, and killed. A rope was left around her neck, and a gag had been taped into her mouth. And Hayden, who we know is kind of like the cleanup guy who moves the body, he actually assisted in concealing his own wife's murder. And apparently, when he was shown her remains, he laughed. Elizabeth was reported missing by her brother to police at 3 p.m. the following day. Police inquiries into Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance led them to the disused bank in Snowtown, which eventually led to the discovery of eight bodies stored in a vault, including that of Elizabeth Hayden. Now, remember Jody Elliott? And she moved to town with her son, Frederick, who was uh, mentally disabled as well and murdered. And then she just kept collecting his, his um, payments. Well, when her friend... Elizabeth was murdered she was like okay that's the last straw I can't that's too far like (laughs) like that's too far they murdered your fucking son Jody Elliott finally filed and stood by this time a missing persons report and the police started asking questions which is the beginning of the end for this disgusting crew of bandits Bunting and his pals had time for one more murder before the police would catch up to them David Johnson was lured to the disused bank in Snowtown by his stepbrother, James Velasakis. Johnson becomes the only person who's actually murdered in Snowtown. So he ends up there May 9th, 1999. The crew were really starting to lose their grip because Johnson wasn't even gay. He wasn't disabled. He wasn't obese. So, like, why are they even killing him, right? But Bunting would often refer to him as a faggot and say he needed to die. So... You know what? I guess that's good enough for them. Velasakis lured Johnson. And remember, Johnson is his stepbrother. So there's a relation there. Uh, He lures him to Snowtown with talk of a computer that's for sale nearby. He drives him there to ostensibly look at the computer, right? Shortly after Johnson entered the bank building, he was grabbed by Wagner around the throat and strangled. Wagner then applied handcuffs to Johnson. And Johnson was forced by Bunting to read a script. Bunting had earlier prepared and was recorded on a computer equipped with a microphone. Johnson also was forced to provide his bank account and PIN number, and Wagner and Valasakis drove to Port Wakefield to attempt to access Johnson's bank account, leaving Bunting and Hayden with Johnson in the abandoned bank. Now, Bunting, we know, does all the killing. Hayden is kind of like a body mover. So what do you think happened? If you leave somebody tied up and being tortured with bunting, what do you think is going to happen? Well, when they returned to Snowtown, Johnson was dead. Wagner, who was apparently pissed he didn't have the opportunity to quote-unquote play with Johnson, 
before he died. So he cuts off particular hunks of flesh, fries them, then shares the meal with his friends. Then they dismembered the body. So if you're Wagner, you are taking this stolen banking information with your buddy and you Velasakis and you drive out to try to access Johnson's money. It doesn't work. You come back, you find Johnson dead. You're like, oh shit, I wanted a chance to torture him as well. Well, let's just cut him up and eat him. That's the next best thing. Why am I trying to find logic in this? Okay. Johnson was their final victim, and the crimes were uncovered when the remains of eight victims were found in barrels of acid located in a rented former bank building in Snowtown, South Australia, which is 145 kilometers north of Adelaide, on May 20th, 1999. Though Snowtown is frequently linked with the crimes, as I mentioned, the bodies had been held in other locations around Adelaide and were moved to Snowtown in early 99 at the end of the crime spree, which had spanned several years. Only one of the victims was killed in Snowtown, uh, which was Johnson, the last victim we just discussed, and none of the victims or the perpetrators were from Snowtown. Because Snowtown got a bad rap after this. And really, I mean, they're not even involved. Eight bodies were found in plastic 55-gallon drums filled with acid in the disused bank vault. Three days later, two bodies were found buried in a backyard in Salisbury North, which is Bunting's old address, and by the end of June, nine of the ten victims had been identified. The discoveries followed a lengthy, covert criminal investigation by South Australian police. During the investigation, two mysterious deaths already known to authorities were found to have been murders perpetrated by the Snowtown murderers. So, a total of four people were arrested and charged over the murders. All were convicted of the murders or assisting in the murders. A lot of the case has not been made public because the case is having been subject to over 250 suppression orders, many of which have not yet been lifted. All right. So as for the murders, the investigation continues. Police discovered the details of the murders, mainly that Bunting and his crew made use of the 55-gallon drums filled with acid. For this reason, the murders were dubbed the Bodies in Barrels Murders. These were stored in a shed, which was owned by Bunting, who routinely checked on the acid's progress. It is said that he enjoyed tracking the decay. So you've got barrels of bodies in your backyard shed, and every so often you're popping back there and looking under and seeing how how the decay is progressing. And enjoying it, right? Usually victims' social security bank details were obtained, and the murderers or their associates impersonated the victims to continue to collect their pensions and welfare checks. Get this. They actually they actually got a total amount of $97,200. That's a lot. The bodies in the barrels were stored in several places before finally being moved to the bank vault in Snowtown. This included a shed behind Benting's house. Then the three barrels were moved to Hayden's property. Then five barrels were stored in a Toyota Land Cruiser and another one in the Mitsubishi Stigma back at Murray Bridge. Both of the vehicles now had barrels in them and the vehicles were driven to Snowtown and then afterwards the barrels were moved into the bank vault. So this is just like an abandoned bank. I mean, for rent. The building is for rent, but it's empty. It used to be a bank. It's empty and there's a bank vault and that's where they're storing all of these drums full of body parts and acid. 
Um, the bank vault had been rented by Hayden. Now, people that live in Snowtown were seeing unfamiliar vehicles coming and going. And this is a small town where strangers really do stand out. Literally, this town has like one main road and then little little streets off of like the main road. It's tiny. Um, so when they were driving in and out of the town, they were loading and unloading stuff at the bank. People that live in Snowtown, I mean, they got suspicious, right? And this is what led to the bank building being searched. They discovered that the final murder was conducted in the bank building after the barrels had been moved there for storage. Of the scene encountered in the building, one Snowtown officer said, quote, it was a scene from the worst nightmare you've ever had. I don't think any of us were prepared for what we saw. The building was also littered with tools used by the killers to torture and murder their victims. Okay. There were knives. There was a bloodstained saw, a double-barrel shotgun, coils of rope, rolls of tape, rubber gloves, cloths. There was the Variac machine used with the electrical impulses. And the pathologist's report later revealed that the victim suffered from prolonged torture. After Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance, and because of Jody Elliott's concern and filing of the police report, the police installed a listening device in Mark Hayden's house, and the recordings of which were later used as court evidence, which is very interesting. Examiners attempting to identify the remains found them mummified. Oh, this is hilarious. Examiners attempting to identify the remains found them mummified rather than dissolved. So the fucking idiot bunting used the wrong acid. He was cutting up bodies, putting them in barrels of acid, hoping that the acid would destroy the tissue. But instead, the acid he used was mummifying the bodies. And what an asshole. Like, this is a guy that was going in the backyard and checking in the barrels and, uh, on the progress of the decay. But didn't he notice that the bodies were actually being preserved? Like, so the killers had chosen hydrochloric acid, which was mummifying the remains, whereas they needed to use an acid like hydrofluoric acid, um, which would be able to dissolve the bodies as it can destroy tissue and decalcify bone. All right. All the men are now in custody and they're awaiting trial. So after a series of pretrial hearings, the first of the accused to be sentenced was Velasakis, who, after pleading guilty to four murders, was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences with a non-parole period of 26 years on June 21st, 2001. So he's out of the way. Then the Supreme Court trial for Wagner and Bunting began on October 14th, 2002. And right from the start, the court had problems. So one juror refused to continue due to the graphic nature and horror of the evidence from the crimes. And eventually two more jurors dropped out for the same reason. Bunting and Wagner, the dynamic duo, their trials were rolled into one and they showed little emotion as they recounted their heinous crimes for the jury. At his sentencing, Bunting was seen reading a book. The trial of Bunting and Wagner lasted almost 12 months and was the longest in the history of South Australia. Both Bunting and Wagner, who pleaded not guilty, I mean, own your shit, dude. Come on. You've come this far. I mean, they pleaded not guilty, but were found guilty on September 8th, 2003. Bunting was convicted of 11 murders and was given 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Wagner, his gay sidekick, 
had pleaded guilty to three murders, was convicted of seven. <laughs> so, <laughs> loser. And was given one life sentence with no possibility of parole. After his sentencing, he stated from the dock, pedophiles, this is a quote, pedophiles were doing terrible things to children. The authorities didn't do anything about it. I decided to take action. I took that action. Thank you. And then sat down. The final outstanding murder charges against John Bunting and Robert Wagner concerning Suzanne Allen were dropped on May 7th, 2007, when a jury was unable to reach a verdict. Both appealed their convictions. In May 2005, the Supreme Court dismissed the appeals by Bunting and Wagner, who had now exhausted their avenues of appeal in South Australia. The presiding judge, Justice Brian Martin, stated that the men were, quote, in the business of killing for pleasure and were also, quote, incapable of true rehabilitation. Good call. The proceeding the proceedings against Hayden continued into 2004, and on August 2nd, a trial opened in which he was charged with two counts of murder and six counts of assisting offenders. Hayden testified that he was not party to the crimes. However, on December 19th, the jury returned from four days of deliberations, convicting Hayden of five counts of assisting in the crimes and reaching no verdict on the two counts of murder and the remaining charge of assistance. In September 2005, the murder charges against Hayden were dropped in return for guilty pleas to two new charges of assisting in the killings of his wife, Elizabeth Hayden, and of Troy. Prosecutors also agreed to drop an additional charge of assisting offenders in relation to the murder of David Johnson. Mark Hayden was given 18 to 25 years. So all of them are tried, convicted, and in prison. But the horrors don't end because the poor community of Snowtown was hugely affected by the news. By the, well, not by the news, by the, by the events that took place in their tiny, tiny little town. The notoriety of the murders led to a short-term economic boost from tourists visiting Snowtown, but that created a lasting stigma. And shortly after the discovery of the bodies in Snowtown, the community discussed changing the name to Rosetown, but this just didn't, never happened. The house in Salisbury North, where Bunting lived and buried two bodies, was demolished by its owner. That's probably a good call. Nobody, nobody's going to want to live there, are they? And so ends the horrifying story of the Snowtown murders, a.k.a. the Bodies and Barrels murders. What I'm fascinated by is this, like, these cult-type leaders who convince others to join them in their quest for goodness or what they think they need to rid the planet of, you know, these evils. So I get it. He was horribly abused as a child. Nobody ever gets over that. But they abused the wrong kid because already, clearly, he had mental health issues. He was going to be easily triggered by something. So to have something so traumatic happen to you, like bunting, to set you off on that course, I mean, the whole thing was the perfect storm for this guy. I mean, it starts with the abuse and it just sets him off on that trail. And then he works at a crematorium. He works in the slaughterhouse. He starts torturing animals. I mean, it's the classic building up story and then this sort of it's not just him that's doing the murders he's able to bring the people around him into his way of thinking and convince them it's very manson and then convince them that this is the right thing to do 
you know, I, were these people murderers to begin with? Or just extremely impressionable? Or just angry? Or just needed an outlet? It just, it, it sounds like all of those things, quite frankly. So it's just fascinating to be in, in the mind and the psychology of someone who's able to just bring people to their side for something that's just so horrific. But a question that I really have is the thing with Wagner. Okay, so when Bunting first befriends Wagner and Lane, you know, gay men, gay men, he, he moves basically next door to a gay couple and befriends them. You know, you would think that he would just go murder both of them right off the bat, but he befriends them. Lane, he gets the information about other perhaps pedophiles or people that like, you know, boys that are too young or something in the neighborhood. So I, I I can almost understand that he was using Lane to get information. But the thing with Wagner doesn't make any sense. So after they kill Lane, okay, why didn't he kill Wagner too? Like, I, I don't, was he so hard up for a sidekick that he was willing? I mean, his whole crusade was against pedophiles and homosexuals. But then his main guy, like his, his, his Robin to his Batman was gay, you know, was a gay guy helping him perpetrate. I guess maybe he thought, well, this guy is helping me kill other gays. So he's going to be saved in heaven or something like that. Did Wagner renounce his homosexuality, you know, to bunting? At some point, I don't know. Did he? Did they have that conversation where Wagner was like, look, dude, I was gay, but I'm not fucking gay anymore. That's gross. Let's go kill all the gays. Do you know? Or was it just, you know what, probably more likely, they just never spoke about it. They probably just never fucking spoke about it and pretend it didn't exist. Because it's not, I mean, for as manipulative and persuasive as Bunting was, I'm sure it's not easy to recruit people to a cause like this. So when you find somebody who's as dedicated to you as Wagner was, and think of how damaged Wagner had to be. Oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, listen, the abuse happened to Bunting and it was his quest and, and his, you know, his whole thing was to, to do that. But then for Wagner, who was just living his life, and okay, true, his boyfriend did befriend him when he was 13 and they started dating. But how old was Lane? Like, what was the age difference? I guess 13 is way too young, though, no matter how, even if you're 17 and the kid's 13, like, this is just disgusting. So I guess Wagner felt like, yes, I was abused as well, or I was taken advantage of by a gay man and with, you know, the sidebar of, you know, the sort of side dish of it being pedophilic. So... I guess there was that, but at the same time, Wagner was still a gay man. But I guess they had that bond in that they both felt that they had been abused in their childhood. And that's what brought them together in this sort of hatred crusade. And then... (laughs) And then there's the acid. I mean, come on. (laughs) There's the acid. I mean, this is like they chose the wrong acid for the barrels. So instead of dissolving the bodies so there was no evidence, they were mummifying the bodies and basically preserving evidence for 
the police and forensics. I mean, that's fucking hilarious. I'll never get over that one. I, that's going to be a hard one to top in future stories. I don't, I don't know if there's, I mean, that they've, they've set a new standard of fuckery in committing murders. Oh my God. And so ends the incestuous, confusing, tangled murder spree of the degenerate crew of the Snowtown Murders, a.k.a. the Bodies and Barrels Murders. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did because it helps me create content you like and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, tell someone where you're going, and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?